Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Broadcasting live from my secret studio here in Los Angeles... In quarantine, this is Ken Levine with Hollywood and Levine. Thanks so much for joining me. And one thing about doing Zoom interviews is it opens me up to a lot more people, people who are on the East Coast, like my guest this week and next, Alan Sepinwall. Now, Alan Sepinwall is one of the premier TV critics yeah, yeah, he's probably panned some of my stuff. Everyone has. Uh, but for 25 years, he has been a TV critic. For 14 years, he was a columnist at the New Jersey Ledger, remember newspapers? And currently, he's the chief TV critic for Rolling Stone magazine. We sat down via Zoom and talked a lot about reviewing television these days. And I have to say, Alan is very candid and very refreshing. You are going to enjoy this meeting with Alan Seppenwall this week on Hollywood and Levine. Well, Alan, my first question is the most obvious one. How much television do you watch in a day? Oh, my God. It really kind of varies. There are days when I barely watch any because I'm doing so much writing. And then there are days where basically from the minute I like come down to my home office until I go back upstairs to be with the kids around six. I'm doing nothing but watching TV, and then I will probably watch a couple of shows with my wife and kids before everybody goes to bed. So it can be a lot. Yeah, I I can imagine. And especially now, when you started, there were just four networks. Now, with all of these platforms and everything, there is just so much product. You obviously can't watch it all. How do you decide what to watch and what to just let go. Oh my God. That's definitely the biggest challenge of the job right now is just figuring that out. And I'm not sure anyone has quite licked it. And I spend an awful lot of time these days watching things that I do not write about, which feels very weird, but like I'll watch the first episode of a show and decide, you know what, this is not for me, or I don't like this enough to want to watch more of it. And so I will just move on to something else. Whereas back in the day, I would get an episode or two episodes of a show and I would review it no matter what because I had already sort of you know sunk in my time to it. But now it's more about looking for the thing that's worth writing about and worth bringing to people's attention. Or in some cases, if it's not good, saying, all right, well, maybe you know, your expectations shouldn't be quite so high for this. But it really it comes down to you know who makes it, who's in it, 
what it's about, often what network or streaming service is doing it, because I find some of them more reliable than others. If FX is doing a show, I'm more likely to take a look at that than if, say, Stars is doing it. Okay, yeah. I wrote a blog post a while ago about an article that I saw about TV network shows that were on the bubble. Yes. And I didn't recognize... (laughs) <laughs> like 60% of these shows. There's like, there was a show called Bless This Mess and, and there was these other shows that, you know, not that I, oh, I, I never watched that. It's just, I didn't even know that those shows existed and those were on the major networks. So it, it's just amazing how much product is out there. Can, can I admit something that you can? Yes. I have not heard of a lot of these shows either. There's just, we passed maybe two or three years ago the point where I could even pretend to just be aware of the existence of all the shows, even if I didn't watch them. So these days there's, you know, just like uh, some show called Indebted got canceled the other day. And I'm not sure I'd ever heard of it before I saw the news that it was canceled. And it is my job to cover this industry. And it's just, there's too much. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, so you're going to review a show. How long does it take you to watch the show and then write your review? It really varies. And one of the big shifts between when I started doing this almost 25 years ago and now is we will often get entire seasons of shows. So, you know, we're like when, when Almost Perfect debuted, which I think was the season before I started doing it, the, the critics, they would have only gotten your pilot episode and nothing else. So you, you spend 24 minutes, you watch that, and then maybe you take a few hours and you write something. And that's, you, you can call it a day. Now, if it was debuting, I would get five, six, ten episodes of it. So I A, have to decide if I'm going to watch all of them. Then I, if I'm going to watch all of them, that takes some time. And then, then the writing about it. So it's all of it a much bigger commitment than before. I guess if you see something and there's 10 episodes and you want to quit after one or two, that says something too. Exactly. And more often than not, if I, if I tap out after a couple of episodes, that just means I'm not going to write about it. There's Every now and then I will write a review where I say they gave me 10 and I watched four. But mostly I would just rather, like I said before, devote the time to finding something exciting than not. Yeah, I've had friends who will say to me, no, you got to watch this show. And they'll say, but, like, the first six are really (laughs) bad. But then they, like, find their groove, and all of a sudden it gets really interesting. And I think to myself, I don't want to spend six hours watching bad television to finally be rewarded. It's, It's a real different kind of place, because if you think some of, you know this as well as anybody, with the exception of something like Cheers, comedies are usually not great right at the start. It takes it takes a while. It can take six, seven episodes, can take half a season, can sometimes take a whole season. And back in the day, it was a lot easier to say, all right, well, I don't know about this show in the paper company office, but there's something here and I like Steve Carell, so I'll keep going with it. And eventually you get rewarded. Now there's so many things out there that it becomes much easier to just say, all right, I'm done. I'm going on to something else. Okay, yeah, well, for me, the job has always been to make one of those pilots that is good, that is promising, right from the first episode. And obviously, you 
move along and you evolve, et cetera, et cetera. But for the pilot, the way I look at it, we have so much more time to write it and we cast the pilot specifically to what we have written. So if it still isn't funny, then we have not done our job. Yeah, it's it, it's a tough one. I reviewed a show this week, uh, Space Force on Netflix, speaking of Steve Carell and, and Greg right. Daniels, we were doing The Office, and there's a lot of really talented people in there, and yet they make a lot of the same mistakes that those guys made right when The Office started, and you would think after all that time working together, they would know, all right, let's let's not have Steve be quite such an obnoxious jerk right at the start because that doesn't work well for him. And it still takes them six or seven episodes on this show to stop doing that. Uh, so it's, and, and Greg Daniels is a really smart and talented guy, but sometimes that happens. Well, do you think in terms of comedy that one of the reasons is because there are very few multi-camera shows, that these are all single camera? So the only way to judge it is for the creator to watch the footage himself as opposed to a multi-camera show where you have the audience feedback and in a sense you're really held accountable i mean when we put a pilot together we have a pretty good idea of what we have because we've had that audience reaction already that's interesting i hadn't thought about that before but i think that there's definitely something to that which isn't to say that multi-cams can't take a while to find themselves. Big Bang oh, sure. Theory. Big Bang Theory wasn't until I think probably the third season that it really became the show that is now as as beloved as it was by, by the end of it. Um, but it's I think there's definitely a sense of when you're doing a single cam, it's a little bit more in a vacuum, even if all of these different people who work on it are watching it, even if all the executives at the network and studio are watching it, uh, it can be a little bit harder to necessarily since is this funny? I think it's funny, but maybe it's not. I I can see that. You know, the other thing with network shows in particular is that we in the industry all know there is so much network interference. Yes. In terms of casting, in terms of the writers just being noted to death. (laughs) So you review a show and you don't like it, and in the back of your mind, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, how much of this is the writer's fault? And how much of this is just the network and the fact that that he was forced to do it? Uh, you, you can never tell unless you sometimes get the showrunner alone in a bar uh, late at night. <laughs> But as you, but this, this reminds me, I'm curious about this, because early on, you and David, you, you ran MASH for a while, and that was single cam, and that was, a, that was a machine that had already been running for quite a while. But by the time you guys were doing it, how did you know when things were working and when they didn't, if you didn't have that audience feedback? You know, I, it's a great question, and I, I guess the answer is just, we held our standard to be the Larry Gelbart years, to be one through four. And so we would look at our shows and go, is this at that level? Are these jokes as good? Would Larry write something like this? Is this a story that Larry would do? (laughs) And that was pretty much our yardstick. Otherwise, no, we just took a shot at it. And I'll be very honest 
there are a number of episodes of MASH during our years or episodes that we wrote that I have a tough time watching today because I think to myself, give me one more day. I can make this script <laughs> so much better. Just give me one more day. Wow. <laughs> and after all these years and all the great stuff you've done, you still have that feeling. I love that. That's, exactly. That's amazing. Exactly. Well, in addition to reviewing shows, you also do recaps on certain series. Yeah. Which to me is like amazing. You'll do like Better Call Saul or uh, like Mad Men, for example, yeah. that had all that subtext and all the symbolism and all that other stuff. And what I would do is watch the episode on Sunday night and then I would go and look at your recap and see what I watched because yeah. you picked out so many things and you tied it into past episodes. And when I read your stuff, I'd be going, yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, okay, I remember that. But I, I never thought of it as the show was just unfolding. Uh, how many of those do you do a year? And that must just be a labor of love to be able to recap a, a series like that week by week. Those are, I do way less of it than I used to. I started like getting hardcore into recapping about 15 years ago. And at the time I would cover maybe a couple dozen shows in a week, but I would write about most of them a paragraph or two as part of a larger roundup of just the TV shows I'd seen last night. And the longer I started doing it, the fewer shows I would cover because I wanted to go deeper and achieve that kind of Mad Men level you talked about or Sopranos or some of the other shows I've covered in, in that level of depth. Um, because that's both the most satisfying stuff I find to write, and it seems like that's the thing that my readers most enjoy. They would rather go for depth than breadth. So these days, I will at most be like recapping two shows at any given time, and sometimes only one. At the moment, I don't have any. Uh, we kind of have to find exactly the right show and the right type, and it's become harder. Indebted. To... You should have done Indebted. <laughs> One of the challenges is a lot of the shows that I think are complex enough to merit that level of analysis are on streaming and they release their whole season at once. And you can't really do an episode by episode recap that way. Uh, so usually I'll write a review before that season debuts and then I'll write some sort of larger piece about the season as a whole, but I'm not drilling down into individual episodes. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that there's something as good as Better Call Saul that still airs on a weekly basis on, you know, on a cable network. Now in the theater, I'm going to put you on the spot here because go for it in the theater, like in Broadway, a review by the New York times and bent Bradley can absolutely make or bake, uh, can absolutely make or break a production. Okay. Yes. How much influence, how much real influence do you think a TV review has on the success of a show? Almost none. Very little. I think there, there's a handful of shows over the years uh, where the critical support was so overwhelmingly positive that the network decided, all right, well, the, the numbers aren't quite there, but it's, it's getting us a claim or it's getting us something else, and they kept it around. But I, I think I could probably count those on maybe my two hands, uh, and that's about it. I've never had uh, deluded myself into thinking, all right, I'm keeping the show on the air. Or I'm killing the show. Certainly the number of shows that have been killed by critics 
in my time doing this is, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I could necessarily come up with one because I think the shows that are ba- that bad, everybody already knows that they're that bad. And more to the point, nobody watched them. And so that's what ultimately killed them. I don't look at it as I'm going to make or break a show. I look at it more as can I just help people find a show or if people are dissatisfied, can I help them explain what's not working about it? Uh, that's how I look at it more than having any kind of commercial role in things. Do you read other critics' reviews to compare? I do, but only after I've written mine. It's really dangerous because, you know, even having conversations with other critics, which we do have, there's always this risk of somebody says something and then it winds up kind of worming its way into your brain. And even if it wasn't your original thought, it starts to feel like it was. And you never want to be doing that. You want to be coming at things entirely from your own perspective uh, with your own way of writing about things. Uh, and so usually it's like I will write about a, a show and then after I'm all done, I will go look at what some of the other best people say. Sometimes when you do that, do you go, damn, I missed that. How did I miss that? Oh, all the time, all the time. I'll uh, read something by like Jim Potawazic of the New York Times and like pound, jokingly pound my fist on the table. And, you know, and then I will go and like send him a text message saying, Jim, damn it. How did you get that? <laughs> who are some of the critics that you really like? Uh, I like Jim. I like Matt Zoller Seitz, who I've written a bunch of books with. Uh, Mo Ryan. Um, let's see who else. Linda Holmes at NPR is fantastic. Um, my gosh, here. Uh, Caroline Framke at Variety, Emily Vanderwerf at Vox. There, there's a lot of really good TV critics out there. And so we've been sort of fortunate in that, like, in the time I've been doing this, the job has gone from an afterthought at various publications to a very central part of it because everybody's watching TV and everybody's talking about TV all the time. So you want to put your best person on it, whereas I got this job in the first place as a 22-year-old summer intern at the star ledger of newark new jersey basically because they just needed someone to to fill in a couple of columns you know two or three times a week while the other guy took the days off uh and that would never happen now yeah you have way more twitter followers than i do (laughs) way more people log on to rolling stone to catch your review of space force than than log on to my blog but on the other hand, how many people have seen your episodes of MASH and Cheers and The Simpsons and all the other great shows you've worked on? I think you have me handily beat in that department. Okay. All right. I'll give you that. <laughs> there are so many different genres. Are there any particular genres that you don't like? Like, if I were a TV critic, I would have no idea how to review Walking Dead or any kind of yep. zombie show. I just don't get it. I don't like them. I don't watch them. And yet, they're very popular. I couldn't just ignore them as if they don't exist. Um, I wrote about Walking Dead. I recapped that show for a number of years, well past the point where I was enjoying it, simply because it was that popular. And eventually, my editors, when I was at Uprock, said, you know what, it's okay. You, you can move on and do something else. Um, there are definitely, like, I don't really write about reality TV anymore, just from a time management standpoint. Horror is definitely something that is not my bag, but if it's really good, I can like it. So what I have to be, what I have to do is I have to be kind of aware of my biases. So, like, English costume dramas, the kind of things that are on Masterpiece Theater, like Downton Abbey, are usually not my thing. 
So, you know, I will either not review them or I will review them if I find them so exceptionally good that they can get over my, you know, general lack of interest in the subject. But there's a lot of times at the various places I've been at, right, I just have to say to my editors, can we please get someone else to do this? Because I would be doing the material a disservice because I'm just fundamentally not inclined to enjoy this kind of show. But you still, from time to time, will check those out. Yes, I, no, I, I'll, I'll I'm watch a... them and I'll, I'll give them a shot. And I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe this is working for me, even if I don't care about the landed gentry. Yeah, I, I'm sort of the same way. I'm not really into those costume British dramas either, but I had gotten a screener DVD from the Emmys, and my wife and I were in Hawaii, and it had nothing to do at night, and so we put on Downton Abbey, and I wound up, I loved that show, <laughs> and I never would have watched it otherwise. The first time I watched Downton Abbey was, it was the middle of the night when one of our kids was an infant and wasn't sleeping all that much, and my wife was really having a hard time, and so I said, honey, go to bed, I will stay up all night, I'll, I'll tend to it uh, when, whenever he or she wakes up, I can't remember which one it was at this point, and so I put on Downton Abbey as the thing to watch, and I watched the entire first season that night in between feedings. Wow. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot again. Okay. Have you ever been wrong? Have you ever panned a show and said, this is terrible, this is going to be gone in five weeks, and it became Game of Thrones or Mad Men or Sopranos or something like that? Absolutely. It happens a lot. That's the great thing about TV is TV shows evolve and change. And there, it's very rare that, like, I don't like episodes of a show and I go back and I like them more the second time. It's more along the lines of I wasn't crazy about a show and then the show gets better, you know, or the show reveals itself to be about more than it seemed to be at first. Uh, the example I, I like to use is BoJack Horseman on the animated show on Netflix, mm -hmm. where I watched the first three, three, four episodes of that, and I thought, all right, this is kind of cute, but it's very Seth MacFarlane. It's very Adult Swim. I've seen this a million times. I, it's, it's okay. I don't need to watch anymore. And then I remember the weekend it was released on Netflix. My Twitter feed just blew up with all these people saying, Alan, you got to watch BoJack Horseman. You got to watch BoJack Horseman. And I would say to them, I, I watched the first three or four. It just seemed okay. And they'd say, no, trust me, keep going. And I wound up watching the rest of that season, and it did indeed evolve into something much more complicated and much more interesting. And it ultimately became one of my three or four favorite shows of the last 10 years. So, And that was one I don't even think I wrote about initially because I was not that impressed by it. So when you do read other critics and yeah. compare, have there been shows where you've hated something and then you, you look and everyone else loved it and you're going... God, was was I wrong? Did, did I miss the boat on this one? What happened? Because I saw this thing and I thought it was a piece of shit. I don't care what Mo Ryan says. <laughs> I don't know that there's ever been one that I thought was absolute like garbage that other people loved. But Succession is a really good example right now. That's a show that just thus far I've given it three or four chances and it does not interest me in the slightest. I keep trying. I keep going to different episodes that other critics say, no, if you get to episode five, if you get to episode eight, then you're really going to love it. And it never has worked for me. And I think part of it is just because I don't really sympathize with any of the characters or find that world interesting. 
But, you know, I've also written books about shows with much worse characters, like The Sopranos or Breaking Bad. So I don't know, there's just something about that, and yet it is one of the most acclaimed shows of the last several years. And one of my projects for this quarantine is I'm going to try watching the remaining episodes and see if it ever does a number on me or if just we are constitutionally uh, not matched. Was I right? Interesting stuff. That's part one of my two-part interview with Alan Sepinwall here on Hollywood and Levine. Part two is next week, believe it or not. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Jason and Bruce Miller, Howard Hoffman, and John Wolfert. If you would like to get in touch with me, just email me at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at Ken Levine, and I am also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Please subscribe if you haven't already. We will join you next week with Alan Sepinwall. Be safe, wear masks, don't be stupid. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Hollywood and the fine.